Canada. A special guest with us today, Neil Gray, a Canadian independent musician, producer, and writer from Toronto. When we did our episode on the Polaris Awards, I discovered a very interesting article he wrote in Killette called The Purity Spiral of Canada's Music Industry. Uh, so I invited him on to talk more about all that in the music scene in Canada, especially in light of the recent Polaris Award winners, which ended up being backwash. Spoiler word <laughs> alert. I guess um, it's not but- a spoiler if the results are out. <laughs> <laughs> um, you're right. Um <laughs> But to start, Neil, um, what got you into music and what's it like being an independent artist in Canada? Because I feel like it'd be hard enough in the United States, but with us being as geographically challenged as we are, it must come with special obstacles or maybe some benefits too. I don't know. But tell us about that. Uh, It's complicated. I mean, as for like how I got into music, I feel like it's the same story, right? Like you kind of... you hear stuff your parents listen to a little bit. Uh, my family, they had pretty wide ranging ch- tastes. Like my dad is like a huge ABBA fan. Oh, fuck yes. yeah. Um, <laughs> but then there was like a lot of, you know, like like Beatles and CCR and stuff like that too. And uh, he also listened to a ton of classical music, which I think kind of did it. But I just, you know, I just fell for it pretty young. And um, from the time I was in grade school, like I was – like learning how to play the piano and stuff like that. And then, you know, when you hit your early adolescence, then it's time to like pick up a guitar and start, you know, yep. rebelling or some <laughs> shit. <I don't> know. <laughs> but um, yeah, so it sort of started there and just sort of had a love for it. Um, worked in record stores for a long time. Uh, and then I actually like went to university and did a music degree ultimately in the end. So that was the start. Um, you know, and you played in bands in high school and uh, and in university also, and then came back to Toronto and uh, worked on the business side for a while in, in licensing and stuff like that um, before striking out on my own to like live the dream or whatever you want to want to say about what that's like. Um, so is it dreamy or what's it like? <laughs> Big sigh. You know, not so dreamy. Um, but I mean... I don't know. I didn't really have any illusions about what it would be like. What's happened though, and uh, you all can probably relate to this on some level, is the cultural landscape has changed a lot, like in the last 10 years, like 15 years, even last five years, right? So answering the question of what it's like is kind of difficult because it was different not that long ago. Um, and now it's very complicated. I mean, additionally complicated with COVID mm-hmm. um, being a thing, right? Like I'm sure you've all heard about like venues closing mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And quite like other areas, um, the music industry had a lot of cracks in it. And COVID's presence has exposed those cracks fairly significantly. So it, it's, to be honest, it's tough going. Yeah, it, it's it, it's hard to give a simple answer. Mm-hmm. That's a I'm good sorry. start. No, yeah. <laughs> we'll get into the details. Um, I mean, how have things changed over time? Like you talked about record stores and then, you know, radio used to be the way people most got music. And then we had a total paradigm shift with Napster and now everyone's on Spotify. So maybe take, take us through all that um, and your thoughts on that. Well, so you got it, basically. Like, it started sort of with Napster, right? And Napster. in the 90s, like, the late 90s was, like, the height of the CD era, 
you know? Mm-hmm. So you had like NSYNC would release a new album and it would sell like a hundred thousand copies in a week. Now, like most people are lucky to sell a hundred thousand copies of a record period. Yeah. Uh, so that, you know, it's a pretty stark indication of, of, of where things have gone. And it started, yeah, it started with Napster. The industry did not do a good job of embracing what was inevitable as far as digital music consumption goes. They just tried to stamp it, stamp it out. Yeah. Illegal. And uh, <laughs> yeah, well, so, so for years, I mean, you know, Metallica trying to fight Napster comes to mind mm-hmm. as like a hilarious example of like a couple of rich people, like just, being pissed off, but not really sort of seeing the forest for the trees. Um, and so then that led to this, this strange nowhere land where people didn't really know what to do for a while. You know, like the industry didn't really know what to do. Artists didn't really know what to do. Uh, album sales were declining. You know, like I really saw that in my time in the record stores. And so, you know, touring eventually became a better source of income for a lot of people, but even that has been on the decline in the last six or seven years. And so now, you know, like it started with the opening of the Apple Music Store, but now we have the streaming services. And that is seen, I think, by the uh, consuming public as being like sort of a solution to uh, the, the way people get music. And it's like, oh, you know, I can listen to it. I'm not stealing it anymore. But the fact is, is like streaming services paid artists bunk, mm-hmm. like nothing. And, um, the reasons why are kind of complex. One thing people don't really know a lot about is that all royalties for sales have always been sort of interesting. Like everybody's heard the story, uh, stories about like labels and managers, like screwing artists mm-hmm. like in the seventies, like yeah. signing them to bad contracts and stuff like that. And that's always been a thing in the industry, but there was a time where the money was pouring in so much that it didn't really matter. And that basically lasted from like, I don't know, the sixties through to the mid nineties. And um, what, what they've done now with the streaming, like a lot of labels, the major labels, they own equity in things like Spotify, right? So they don't really have an interest in the artist getting paid. They just have an interest in uh, like the quarterly valuation of some of these platforms. Right. And uh, that leaves a lot of the independents like a little bit out in the cold um, because you're not getting that major label equity money thrown at, thrown at you. Uh, and additionally, you're not making anything on your streams so short version but it's uh yeah it's in a very odd place because again the touring thing has kind of declined there in the last five years one thing that's been really noticeable is a lot of less people are going to shows yeah even before covid Uh, yeah even before covid like there was a lot of venue closures in toronto in particular um in the last five or six years Hmm. and Mm -hmm. um you know you could speculate a lot as to why i mean i have my ideas i think people are just so inundated with like information and other forms of entertainment that it's just something that they think about less like you know people stay home and watch netflix or whatever and so festivals have then become a thing but then festivals um just a party you know yeah i mean but they're, they're paid out differently and um Whereas festivals sometimes used to be like independently run by like one group of promoters or like if you think about Lollapalooza, how like Perry Farrell started it and then it sort of um, was, became its own company. Now you had conglomerates like Live Nation buy up a lot of festivals. And then so they're able to dictate sort of the terms as to how people are paid. And usually what that amounts to is, is like your big headlining acts make a ton of money. Uh, and everybody else in the middle and below gets really squeezed and are just sort of presented with this like, well, you should just be happy to be here kind of uh, mm. kind of vibe. 
So, so it sounds like so things are bleak. <laughs> yeah, it's not sustainable. Yeah. No, no, it's not sustainable at all. And it, I mean, like this has a lot of a lot of repercussions in ways that people don't necessarily consider. So now, just for example, it's become far more common to see uh, artists. And this is by no means absolute, but like artists who are up and coming um, or who are sort of moderately successful. Quite in, in enough cases, they generally have like wealth behind them, like mm. familial wealth or or some other kind of source um, that's allowed them to like go and live in New York City and um, or, or Los Angeles or Toronto for that matter, and um, and sort of do nothing but that but that because the average person who used to be able to like work a part time job like live cheaply and really crack it on their music it's nearly impossible now mm-hmm. you know like it wasn't that long ago just to use New York as an example like you could go to Brooklyn rent a loft for like two hundred dollars a month like split it with a couple of your greasy friends like work <laughs> two shifts at the coffee shop. And like you were great, but that's that's impossible now. Like doesn't exist anymore. So a lot of things have changed. Also on the consumption side, I feel like with Spotify, at first I was like, oh, this is so great. And you use it for the first week and you're like, wow, so many interesting artists I hadn't heard from before. But very quickly, it just starts to be the same shit over and over again. And it just seems like I'm not finding like the gems anymore. It's just like, I'm not even joking. There's like a couple songs that it keeps trying to play for me. And I'm like, I don't like this song. Stop (laughs) recommending it to me. It's one of those annoying like hipster commercial songs. And so I feel like it, 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 like, I don't know. How do you see that kind of playing out for, for independent artists? Um, The whole Spotify. You have to be part of the algorithm, right? (laughs) Correct. And that's actually like, that's a really interesting bigger question and I actually have been thinking about writing something on this so just you know full disclosure I like I use Spotify I have a subscription you know like I realize that it sort of screws all of us um it is awfully convenient I mean I still like I still buy stuff like I buy vinyl and and go to shows like I try to uh support people whose work I really like but um the thing inevitably what happened on Spotify is is you have like the payola system or a version of it. Do you guys know what the payola is? No, no. So payola is when labels and managers used to go to radio stations and basically bribe them to play a song, right? Like in, at certain times of the day mm. or an, enough that it would get sort of traction with an audience. And then that would lead to like single sales, record sales, et cetera. Uh, so now there's a version of this um, with Spotify with, again, labels who they're more closely affiliated with will get sort of, preferential treatment with regards to, you know, if you like this, you're going to love this. Mm -hmm. And then also there's the algorithm, which is really strange because I don't think we really quite know how this is all going to play out yet, but I just out of curiosity sometimes like go to some of those algorithm made playlists and it's true. There's a lot of stuff on it. You may not have heard, but sometimes it all sounds like fucking car commercial music. (laughs) And, and it's, and, and it, and People are probably going to get angry at me for saying this, but it's become a way now to like make a living to target what you're making for the algorithm. Yeah. So you're, you've become like, you know, in the, in the early sixties, there was these, uh, these like singles houses where they would basically like, you know, the beach boys had a hit. So they would pull like three songwriters and then those guys would make some shitty beach boys rip off uh, just to get it sort of into the charts. Mm-hmm. And so there's a version mm-hmm. of that on Spotify now. Uh, like across genres where you see people who are just focused on making algorithm algorithmically friendly music 
and uh, in order to, to get it on playlists, gets played more and they get paid. And I mean, it, it makes sense, you know, in terms of making a living, mm -hmm. but it is creating this really weird situation where like what you're getting is, it's not somebody's neat idea. Do you know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, totally. That's, yeah, that's really interesting. Um, so how is the government supporting Canadian artists during this time? And I know in the past, like, I think feel like everyone knows about the old like quotas, like on, on radio stations where um they have uh, you have to play like a certain amount of canadian songs or something like that um yeah. and then i don't know your thoughts on that and like anything they're trying to help you with today via like grants and stuff like that that the quota sort of this quota still exists mm -hmm. right um it's just they've sort of widened the variety of the kinds of things that are considered like broadly playable as canadian music like whatever the fuck that means you know it used to be uh, very like hokey, like Canadiana, right? Like, so like your Anne Murray type stuff. And, you know, there would be like good artists broke through in that too, like Leonard Cohen and Gordon Lightfoot and stuff like that. So it wasn't all bad, but in terms of support, other than that, like the granting system in Canada is fairly robust, right? Like there's, there's more than one place uh, where you can get grants, you know, usually like there's a federal uh, granting agency, the Canadian Council for the Arts uh, in Ontario, we have a provincial one as well. Um, and then usually cities also have, uh, have, have their own sort of granting body uh, that's much smaller. And then there's Factor, and Factor is sort of a little bit separate. Like, they're still focused on Canadian content, but Factor is more of a commercially oriented enterprise. Mm -hmm. So all that stuff still exists, but the problem is, given the sort of dire state of the industry, like, it doesn't really sustain anybody as well as it should. You know, like, it, it I mean, that's a lie. Like, it sustains certain people, but there are certain people who are like operating in this in this particular box where they have access to that money kind of all the time. Um, but broadly speaking, it doesn't really support the, the you know, the sort of broad minded creation of art. It more supports like a economic enterprise that I mean, fair, like which employs a lot of people, you know. The economic enterprise for the granting agency, or what do you mean by that? Well, for the artists, so so like the the arts uh, granting bodies, they don't just give money to artists. Like they give money to labels, they give money to uh, people to put on festivals. Uh, it's it, it's sort of the range, and I mean this is true also for like literature and theater and other things like that. It's not strictly like okay, we're giving you money to make a record or write a book. Mm -hmm. um, so so you know, that stuff employs people, as does, like, having people make records and touring them. Like, you have people who work in venues, you have sound people, like, music video directors. You know, there, there's a whole large group of people who um, whose employment, like, relies on, on this kind of thing. It's, uh, yeah, I mean, as for where it's at right now, there's actually, like, like a huge movement. Like, the, the, uh, there's not been much bailout money uh, for artists under COVID, right? Like, and that's become a big problem, especially with the venues closing. There's been a lot of lobbying on the part of people in Toronto to try and get something to happen. Uh, you see similar movements in like the UK right now. Is is uh, there's a whole group that's organized around trying to protect venues from shutting. But uh, as to where we go from here, like oof, I don't even know. Uh, you, um, uh, your article spent some time talking about the equity, diversity, and inclusion criteria in a lot of these grants. And I thought it was just really interesting because uh, I was a grad student and this kind of concept was all the rage, but to the extent that it actually achieved its goals, I think is not clear. <laughs> so I don't know, can you talk a little bit about that and like um, your experiences applying for grants and um, 
you know, the effect that has on, on culture and artists and et cetera? This is a thorny subject, obviously, right? Because there is a history, obviously, of, of certain groups of people being largely left out of being able to participate in cultural institutions, mm-hmm. right? Like everybody knows that. It's, it's not, not really something you can question. And to the degree that that's still the case in, in certain areas, I think it's true. Like a classic example would be like, there's not a lot of, there's not a lot of like female music video directors, mm-hmm. right? And so like, that might be something that, that, that's sort of like worth thinking about how to address. But quite like in universities, it's become not just all the rage, it's become the entire focus of a lot of these programs. And I think what you're seeing is not necessarily an improvement because people also forget to like music has generally been kind of more of a diverse industry Mm -hmm. than other industries. Like it's always sort of been like accepting of like freaks and like weird weirdos. And, (laughs) and, uh, and then also there's like a long history, even in Canada of like, you know, non-white people making very influential music and being quite successful at it. Mm -hmm. So that's not to say that there, there's still more barriers but I think what, what's happened now is like the over-focus on this kind of thing not only doesn't yield the results that you want, but it kind of undermines the whole process of art making to begin with. There's, there seems to be an issue with like, so if you're, if you're an artist who's a, who's a member of uh, like, I guess, a, a marginalized community, it's not enough that you're a member of that community. You also have to represent the politics mm-hmm. that go along with, uh, with what these diversity, equity, and inclusion programs want. So, you know, you, you really have to put yourself out there as like, you know, like I'm this, and this is what this means politically in my life. Like you can't just be that person and make what you want to make. It seems like. Yeah, you're being and steered. So, so I feel um, that it leads to a kind of cynicism and like bad incentives. And um, in a already highly competitive environment where people like really rely on this money in order to be able to, 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 to do stuff like it allows you to sort of sort of game the system in a particular way and that's not to say everybody does that right like I'm sort of speaking in broad terms but I just think that it puts the focus uh, in the wrong area in terms of art making and so just like to give you an example so last grant I applied for the one that I that I wrote about which you could really see that initiative like far more present in sort of all the questions um, you got to this question is like, how does, you know, your projects involve people from uh, our priority communities, which is like, you know, LGBTQ, like indigenous, uh, like people of color and so on. And I actually was like working with people from kind of all those communities. There was like this diverse aspect of the project, which wasn't necessarily the point. These are just people I knew, mm-hmm. um, you know, who I wanted to work with in some capacity. But it felt really weird to have to like go Frame it in that on this, way. <laughs> right? Yeah, and like play it up. And, like also, like I mean, to be honest, like for me as like a white guy, like it feels like fucking Icky, stupid yeah. to have to go on to be like, all oh, my friends are black, you know? Like it just, it, it just. It felt really gross, right? Mm-hmm. But it's it's clear as to like how, um, to me, how that kind of thing could um, could be what people end up doing. And then the other thing that they do, I mean, because these things are very competitive too, right? Is like so, it, you know, if, if maybe you're like hovering um, on your diversity quota in terms of in terms of numbers and stuff, then you just really play up your politics, right? Which is obviously the sort of identitarian, like I don't know. It, I don't want to say radical left because I don't really think it is leftism myself, 
you know, seeing everything through a particular lens and uh, sort of presenting it all as being nothing but that. Mm, so, mm -hmm. so what do you think would be an effective way to create kind of more economic opportunity for marginalized groups, just like open every grant up and like the best of the best wins? Or like, what do you think is a more effective way to go about that? I don't know if I have an answer to that. I'd like it to be that you opened it up and the best of the best win like that would that would be mm. ideal. You know, that's shown been shown not necessarily to work uh, all the time. I mean, part of the reason why, unfortunately, is like, you know, like Toronto is the center of the music industry in Canada. It's obviously a very diverse city. Mm. But in general, like Canada is still highly skewed um, in terms of its like, you know, white European um, wasps. <laughs> yeah, well, wasps, I guess. I mean, in fairness, though, like, they're not Protestant in Quebec, so we can't really use that one there. Um, yeah, it, there are just more of those people than... than demographically. Than, mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. So they're going to be overrepresented to a certain degree. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't think overrepresentation is necessarily automatically discrimination. Yeah. Like, in the, there are certain, certain instances where it is, um, but it leads to this sort of question of, like, are, are unequal outcomes automatically the result of like active prejudice or systemic racism or something like that? I think that it plays a role, but as to how much, I think it's very difficult to say precisely. And I don't know. I mean, in like a perfect world, everybody would just sort of embrace uh, like everybody else sort of doing what they want and it would be sort of accepted broadly. I mean, the problem with the granting system, like with anything, is it's like there's always going to be a limited number of spots mm -hmm. right and those limited number of spots need to be won by certain people uh so it automatically sort of like narrows the uh narrows the playing field for lots of folks and i don't know i don't know how much good it does i mean my big issue too is it's like i wonder that it institutionalizes certain certain notions about like how music is and how it should be right. uh and then you know you sort of, sort of see this play out in uh, in other areas, you know, vis-a-vis -vis, like some of these controversies that we talked about in the article. Mm -hmm. So um, uh, on those controversies, I mean, just in general, but we could just start talking about the award shows like the Junos and the Polaris. Like, what role do those play for artists? Do artists like are those highly coveted? Well, so I just want to say in general, like I can only speak for myself, of sort of on all on all of these issues. Just you know, just to be just to be clear, like I, I wouldn't claim to to uh, to kind of speak for everybody. By and large, nobody takes the judo seriously <laughs> uh, at all. Like nobody. It's like it's like Canada patting itself on the back for making for having people that make music. We did music, yay! Yeah, exactly, exactly, and. Yeah, it like rewards some talented folks, but if you look at the Junos every year, obviously there's like a shifting shifting landscape over time, but you see a lot of the same names, right? Yeah. So like Shania Twain always gets a lot of awards, like Avril Lavigne always got a lot of awards, <laughs> Our Lady Peace gets a lot of awards. It's just like, you know, and the Grammys is not dissimilar, to be honest. Like a lot of people don't really take the Grammys very seriously mm -hmm. either, and they shouldn't because it sort of seems to reward, I guess, like not quite popularity, but like what people who, you know, sit on certain panels or higher up in the industry think should be popular. Mm -hmm. Polaris is a different beast. Like Polaris actually I think matters to people because it's, you know, the, the Polaris uh, music prize is for artistic content only with no, no regard to commercial uh, sales or commercial potential or anything like that. So I think that that does matter because it's, it's not just uh it's not just the money or something like that. Like, 
everybody wants to be recognized for like doing something really well, you know? And uh, yeah, and so I think that matters uh, for people who are certainly in it like deep for the art reasons Mm -hmm. and like less so to like become a meme or just, you know, (laughs) I don't know, to like hobnob with uh, Ben (laughs) Mulroney. Okay, so title uh, of the tell episode <laughs> Hobnob yeah, with, ben with Ben Mulroney. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> um, so tell us about all the. I didn't realize there was so much drama um, around the surrounding the Polaris Awards, at least before. So in 2015, there was a big. There was much ado about a band formerly known as Viet Cong. Can you tell us about that? <laughs> yeah. So Viet Cong are from Calgary. And they were originally, well, half of them were originally this band called uh, Women, uh, who were very, like, popular sort of in the, like, like the indie circuit. Were they all men, uh, just to clarify? Yes, okay. yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So that actually, if they had made it past 2012, that might have become a problem. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, like, but Women, like, one of the chief songwriters died. And so, you know... the a couple of the guys, the drummer and the bass player formed Viet Cong. And they picked this name like really haphazardly. You know, they talked about it in interviews. It was like they were in a rehearsal and somebody was like wearing something that looked like one of those like rice paddy hats Mm -hmm. and like holding one of their guitars. So it like kind of looked like a gun. And then somebody was like, oh, it's really Viet Cong. (laughs) And then that that was just this (laughs) thing that stuck and they picked it as their name. And it's like, yeah, it's it's kind of stupid. Yeah, but um, probably the best choice. (laughs) Well, no, it served not to be the best choice. And and so by the time they put out, like they put out a cassette only record, but by the time they made their first full length and were on tour, uh, people were really upset about the name. And, you know, it was accusations, uh, accusations of cultural appropriation and uh, people from the Vietnamese Canadian community were not happy that like something that is associated with like a certain amount of suffering, mm-hmm. uh, like in Vietnamese history, it was like being used as a name. Uh, by like four white guys from Calgary uh, <laughs> who play post-punk. And I mean, like it makes sense, right? Like and it's sort of, like that's something that you can sort of kind of understand, probably get into the appropriation thing a little bit later. But, uh, but I think the band, as soon as it started happening, they kind of realized their mistake, mm-hmm. you know? Like it was a little bit naive. They, they weren't trying to upset anybody. There was protests at their shows. Some of them got canceled. Like there were a lot of, uh, a lot of shows they were playing at universities, even in the U.S., were just canned outright. But they would go outside and like talk to the protesters and like hear what they had to say. I can't remember the timeline. It was a little while into it. They announced, they're like, okay, we're going to change our name. But they'd already booked a tour under Viet Cong. Like they had all the merchant merchandise printed and stuff like that. So they, they continued the tour with that name, mostly because they didn't have any choice in a certain way. And uh, that made people even more angry um, because they felt like, you know, saying we're going to change your name is kind of a lie. But yeah, when the tour wrapped up, they did change their name to Preoccupations. It had sort of spilled over at Polaris. So the Viet Cong record, sorry, going back here a little bit, uh, was nominated for the two, 2015 prize. And uh, and they played the show, but they essentially played the show under no name, right? Mm-hmm. Like, they, they, like it, they weren't introduced as Viet Cong. Dan Buchner from Wolf Parade, you know, introduced them. And he said, you know, like, they're changing the name. Uh, we're not going to say it. You know, like 
let's sort of get on with it. Mm-hmm. And people were just still unhappy. They felt like not enough was being done, I think, ultimately. And, and so there was a protest outside the Polaris. There's a lot of heated exchanges on the internet and elsewhere. Like, yeah, Dan was sort of accused of, like, not taking the complaint seriously enough. Um, because he had this line in his introduction where he said, uh, and I think rightly, like, while we're, you know, sort of upset about this, you know, he said, like, the forces of darkness are massing, mm-hmm. you know, and, and he was sort of referring to, like, broader cultural and political forces, mm-hmm. but then he was accused of racism for using the word darkness, <laughs> oh my like, God. as it pertaining, yeah, but, but seriously, this is where it went, so, and then other people were defending him, and then they were sort of accused of, of the same, and, you know, like, I think, meanwhile, like, the band just wanted to get the fuck on with it, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, which they inevitably did, but they still haven't been able to shake the the whole the thing right so they yeah it's a, it is a stain so they uh they put out their last record i think in 2018 it was like the, the second under the new name and uh a lot of the initial reviews like in the global mail most notably they spent like three quarters of the thing talking about the old name controversy mm-hmm. and there was very much like a, a very heavy insinuation that like this is not the kind of thing you can just be forgiven for it seems right? wildly disproportionate. Like, I feel like at, at max, it's like, oh, okay, that's kind of dumb. But like, it just seems, yeah. a, and like you say, a really, if someone is that concerned about, I don't know, the well-being of the Vietnamese community, it just seems like there's bigger fish to fry. And they're the ones that are still bringing it up, yeah. which would maybe like upset the people that were upset. Over and over and over again. No room for forgiveness. What do they? What do people want them to do at this point? Yeah, they listen to everyone. They change their name. Like, what else do you want? Do you want them all just jump off a cliff? It's not allowed to have a career anymore. I guess that's basically what it is. I guarantee you that they will never be nominated for the Polaris again. Mm -hmm. I I would. I bet you anything. Because another thing that happened is like after the awards. I mean, they didn't win that year. uh, Buffy Saint Marie won. and, you know, like maybe like rightfully, whatever, that's a different conversation. But the guy who put them forward uh, for to be on the shortlist or whatever and like wrote, I guess, the program notes about them, he issued a formal apology saying like he never should have done that. And it like implicates him in racism and all this <laughs> kind of stuff. And, you know, meanwhile, I think the band is probably just sitting there going like, oh, my God, we just chose a stupid name. <laughs> I wish we hadn't like and they're probably all looking at each other going like, I really wish we hadn't done this. Yeah. And um, and I think that that was pretty sincere, mm-hmm. um, although you could see like there was a point later on in the tour with the protests where they were starting to get like it was getting a little combative. Um, and for the reasons like you were just saying, they were kind of like, what else do you want us to do? Mm-hmm. You know, like we're trying to do all the right stuff here. And it seems like we're still sort of being buried for it. So, yeah, I think I think that their insider time in the Canadian music world was probably a the little, Internet a never done. forgets. <laughs> no. um, you wrote that something in the culture shifted when Godspeed You Black Emperor protested the Polaris Gala in 2013. So that was a bit before. And then you nicely contrasted that with the, I guess I'm going to put protest in quotes, scare quotes of Lido Pimienta. Um, can you tell us a bit about those two expressions of whatever you call it? Well, so God's, the Godspeed thing was really interesting because it's sort of, you know, anybody who's sort of followed this stuff has seen that there's like been a very clear trajectory since like 2014 or something. And uh, Godspeed, they refused to attend the awards and they sent up their manager when they got the prize to like read a statement. 
And it basically was saying something to the effect of like, isn't it nice that we're all sitting in this large rented hall, like supported by Toyota or whatever, like patting ourselves on the back, you know, meanwhile, like there are bigger problems in the world. And they sort of outlined that they were going to give the award money to establish a, a, like a music program for prisoners in Quebec. Mm. And um, it's, it sits exactly like Godspeed are, they're they're anarchists, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So it totally is in line uh, with their, you know, general set of ideals and aesthetic and so on but what was funny is like people were really upset that they did that they're like who the fuck are these guys what you just can't take a prize oh my god you know and it was really strange i actually thought it was kind of an interesting move like i have no problem with it personally Mm -hmm. Uh, but a lot a lot of people and not just like the critic class but some of the other artists were kind of like you know calling them pretentious fucks and sort of uh, like dismissing the, the the movement as being like kind of insincere. Like, why didn't you pull yourself out of the running for the prize to begin with kind of thing. So their protest was not viewed very well. And then, you know, a few years go by and you have these, these uh, more directly identity oriented protests and also not, not necessarily controversies, but also moves like Lido wasn't, uh, wasn't protested, but she's very outspoken um, about, you know, her views on certain things, uh, particularly when she, she won her award and people loved it. Like they ate it up, but like, and what did God... she do just for the viewer? Well, so Lido Pimienta is, um, she, she's, she's very embedded in, I guess what you would call, or I would call like the identitarian movement. So to her, it seems pretty clear that any sort of anything that can be viewed as an affront is, uh, is the product of, uh, some kind of, uh, like prejudice at least and like outright racism at worst. So she's embroiled herself in a few controversies leading up to when she won, but at the awards when she won, like the first five things she said were like, you know, I want to thank my mother for enduring white supremacy in Canada. And I did this in spite of all the people who told me I couldn't because, you know, because of who I am as a, like a Afro, um, Afro-Colombian person, Mm -hmm. which I always think is kind of funny because you're getting a very highly touted award. Yeah, you won. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And so I have no doubt that like at times she's like, she's in particular really probably her mother, like who I think came to Canada on her own, like like faced some hardship around like where they were from, Mm -hmm. for sure. It's not exactly an indictment of the country that that's where you came from and you won one of the most prestigious music prizes. Yeah. Um, but people, people really love that. And um, I thought it was an interesting you know, comparison to make. Cause like you have on the one hand, these guys who are just like, fuck this, we're going to use our money to, this is stupid. And like, we're going to use our money to help prisoners or something. And then you've got her being like, I don't know, going on about white supremacy in Canada or whatever. And just doing the kind of, really um mainstream identitarian stuff and that's taken as being like the 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 truly uh rebellious thing and it just it's clear it's so manufactured like and and it's just yeah it is i mean i think like for one with godspeed um putting money into something like that you're actually doing activist work like you really are like that's on the ground kind of stuff it's like trying to make a difference like actively um Whereas I can't help uh, personally feel that like Lido's whole thing is a little, I don't think it's insincere. Like I think she really, you know, b- believes mm-hmm. it, um, but it feels very cynical, you know, 
and it's like, and just as an example too, as to what her her general uh, like way of thinking about this kind of thing is, is so the prize this year was won by Backwash, who you know is a a, a black trans artist, and um, you know Lido tweeted her congratulations. She was also nominated this year for Miss Columbia, but immediately as part of the congratulations, she was like, "Don't listen to all the people who hate you for who you are," and like blah blah. And it, again. It, I, if you if you were to go on Twitter or read anything about backwash winning, there's none of that, mm-hmm. like none. But you know, it, it's a sort of perpetuating of an idea that 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 is fundamentally what like the music community is about, and that's fundamentally like what Canada is about, and all these other things. And that's again, that's not to deny uh, that we don't still have our problems, mm-hmm. uh, and that we haven't in the past, but. It just doesn't, it just doesn't sit. Yeah, it's like benefiting from this underdog, like, uh, conception of yourself when you're literally winning, <laughs> like you're not <Yeah>. that. <laughs> and everyone, and, and everyone loves, is showering you with like love and adoration and just this, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I definitely see what you mean. I feel that that kind of, um, mentality is sort of an extension of the initiatives like in the granting system right right and so like she's a really good example of somebody who who doesn't just uh like represent the politics or or represent the diversity because of her identity she really like actively represents the politics in an outward way she's always calling people out on twitter (laughs) (laughs) who has the time like jesus (laughs) yeah no kidding i mean like seriously like music making takes a lot of time um so Going off that, you describe the Canadian music scene today as cultish. Um, do, is it just kind of surrounding that kind of stuff? or? Well, I mean, it's like the industry in Canada has always been kind of incestuous uh, because like we're a smaller country and because of the way the infrastructure operates. So just uh, to map it out a little bit, like you have these granting bodies. The, the grants are awarded by panels, right, who work on these bodies. The panels are made up of other artists, producers, managers, journalists. These journalists, for example, turn around and write write about the acts uh, that they're granting money to. It's just it's just very circular. Mm-hmm. And as people probably know, like cultural institutions have generally been uh, like very primed to sort of to sort of adopt the hard identity politics uh, stuff. And I think when you have like small community where everybody sort of operates in the same circle. And then you bring that into it, it just it, it it's just becomes extra potent. I mean, like we've all seen all over the internet right now, like you know, there's this whole cliche about like the left eating its own constantly. Yeah. Uh, and it's a little bit true. And you know, so when you when you have a small group of people in a hyper competitive industry, there are always going to be people who like want to throw the next person under the bus just because it's possible to do it. And I think because in Canada, like if you're going to leave that circle, you don't really have anywhere else to go. Mm. Right. So that creates a bit of a problem. Like, or if you're in the U S and like, I don't know, you could be in any number of major cities, you could be in Portland, right? Like there are, there are a lot of places that you could decamp to, you know, that would, would have a separate circle, but in Canada, it's all, it's kind of just all one big morass. And sorry, one extra thing about this is like prior to, to um, the sort of modern situation with this, like that circle frequently revolved around, like we were saying, like how Canadian things things were. So, mm-hmm. you know, like 
things had to represent Canada and whatever we thought of Canada as being like, which to me is ridiculous, which often sounded just like, I don't know, like Stomping really benign. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, but exactly. Like you had to, I don't know, adopt this like folksy, uh, like wholesome kind of, kind of attitude. And there was sort of a monoculture there. And so now there's, that's been supplanted by a, a different kind of monoculture. Uh, and it's it's one related to the way they think about things in their politics yeah. as opposed to who they are. So let's talk cultural appropriation. Um, <laughs> tell us what happened at the Indigenous Music Awards and your take on that. Guys, I'm going to get canceled so hard <laughs> for all of this. That's what you're here no. for, to get canceled. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's too late. Um, everybody's languishing in obscurity these days anyway, so it doesn't matter. So the Indigenous Music Awards... Um, had a cultural appropriation controversy of all things. And uh, what happened was uh, there was a, a, a Cree artist from out West. I think she's from Alberta. Uh, I, I can't pronounce her artist name. I'm sorry, I'm gonna butcher it, but Sikwis. Mm-hmm. Um, and she was nominated uh, for one of the awards for this record that she made that uh, involved sort of a, like a take on throat singing. Mm-hmm. And just so people know, like throat singing is like a, uh, like a musical practice primarily used by the Inuit, right? Mm-hmm. In, uh, in Northern Canada, mm-hmm. you know, it's very distinct. There are sort of versions of it in like Mongolia and elsewhere, yeah. right? Like it's not just a Canadian phenomenon, but it is, it's a very unique thing. And so Connie Legrand had, had uh, she'd been asked to fill in at uh, some festival or something for somebody else. And she sort of decided to do this like kind of improv uh, throat singing thing. And she, she liked doing it. So she sort of adopted it into her musical practice, uh, which also, you know, involved a lot of like R and B and like reggae stuff. It was, it was like very wide ranging what she did. Mm. So her record was nominated for one of the prizes. She was basically told that she was appropriating, you know, Inuit throat singing and they lobbied the awards to remove her record from nomination. And uh, there was this other group of artists who were nominated in the same category. I'm sorry, I'm just going to look because I can't remember the name. Mm-hmm. The top of my head. Pixic. So they would, Pixic were nominated in the same category. And um, they actually pulled their record the, uh, from the nominate, you know, from being up for the award because they thought, you know, this person who had appropriated Inuit throat singing should, should not be nominated for any award. And there was uh, like a lot of vocal uh, supporters of, of kicking Connie Legrand out of it. So like Tanya Tagak, who's probably one of the most famous throat singers on the mm-hmm. planet, who actually won the Polaris years ago for, for one of her records. Um, she was very vocal about it and uh, a tribe called Red were very vocal about it. You know, credit to Connie Legrand, she refused to sort of concede and, and she, uh, she kind of like preoccupations a little bit. She went through this whole process where she, she talked to the elders in her community and like asked them what they thought mm-hmm. um, and was told, you know, like she, <laughs> she was told that notions of ownership uh, over things like this are like European constructions. Yeah. So, Funny. you know, so it's fine. Just, just, you know, be okay with it. And she refused to pull her record. And there was a, a lot of people refused to attend the awards and there was a big Yikes. hubbub about it. And obviously she didn't win. But again, there's kind of this weird irony in this, in that like this woman who, you know, I, I'm not trying to be uh, denigrating to her, her, her career or anything, but she was like kind of a small figure, mm-hmm. right? Uh, being like 
totally stomped on by Tanya Tagak and a tribe called Red, who are like huge mm-hmm. relative to her in this community. So, you know, the whole for all the talk of like power structures and stuff, it seemed to be quite inverted on the actual the actual side of like who was mad at who over what. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, it, I mean, it raises a really interesting question about appropriation, like what is it or what isn't it? You know, when is it okay? Yeah. Any any thoughts on that more generally? Like, uh, I know there's no there's no hard line, but just like anything, and, and you've probably thought about this a lot. I have. I mean, it's tricky, right? Because it, people seem to think sometimes like culture exists in a vacuum, right? Where like things rise up uh, independently out of nowhere, and uh, and our sole ownership of uh, of where it came from, and that's just simply not true, right? There's always been cultural cross-pollination. Uh, popular music is rife with it, right? Like, it, yeah. it, you can name examples, like, until the cows come home. Mm. And that kind of cultural uh, exchange has actually generally been the bedrock of the arts, like, going back to antiquity. Mm-hmm. So it's very strange, then, to slap ownership labels on things like that. However, I mean, for me, the line would be, like, if somebody's using a very particular former version of something in a way that's like outright insulting Mm -hmm. right like so if you think about minstrel shows and blackface like i think that's a kind of cultural appropriation like it's obviously clearly racist also Mm -hmm. Um, but there's a there's a sort of weird that like nobody also knows this about minstrel shows the people who are the whites who are acting in minstrel shows like in blackface they actually really fucking liked black culture Hmm. Like they, they, and it's you can read about this. It's historically pretty well documented. Like yes, they were performing it for like the white upper class who was like kind of happy to sit there and like be racist and laugh at them. But the people who were doing it actually were really big fans of the culture. But I would say that's a pretty negative form of appropriation, right? Because of like how how it ended up. It's it, it's caricature. Right. It's not it's not taking something that you love and like you know, adopting it to your own perspective or your own, you know, your own ideas about what you would like to make. I guess mm-hmm. it's, it's hard with music too, because especially with the example of the throat singing, it's like if she organically learned that from someone who did that and thinks it's beautiful and incorporates it into her music, like, like personally, I don't see a big problem with that. Also, I'm not indigenous, so I don't really know how that feels. But like, wouldn't that be the same as like lifting something from another culture, like putting like a like a bongo drum or a djembe drum into your music? Like, is that cultural appropriation like instruments? Well, I, I mean, that's that's happened like that happens all the time. So there are two things I actually want to touch on with this. Like there's this classic adage that it gets tossed around a lot that rock rock was stolen. Right. Yeah. So like white, white stole rock and roll mm-hmm. uh, uh, from black people and uh, in the U.S., like, you know, from blues and R&B primarily. And it, it's it's not exactly true. Right. Because a lot of the basis of like blues and R&B, like if you go back even further, involved like the influence of like European folk music and stuff like that. So, I mean, like at what point has who stole and what from whom? Mm-hmm. And like, there's no question that there was a time, you know, in the 50s and 60s where black artists were not going to get played like widely on radio. You know, you even had David Bowie calling out MTV in like 1980 for not playing, not playing enough black artists. So certainly that's been a thing. But frequently uh, the white artists who, you know, due to circumstances were more successful. And I mean, like, that's important to keep that in mind. But usually they, they kind of loved what they were adopting. Like the best example is probably like the Rolling Stones, right? 
like the Rolling Stones kind of sound like Chuck Berry. And, um, and it's super bluesy at times. You know, like if you didn't know anything about who the Stones were, would you think that Mick Jagger is English, right? Like it, it, it so, but they, um, they also went out of their way when they were famous to like bring uh, the artists they liked on tour with them, right? So that they tried to expose their predominantly like white artists to, uh, to some of the, like the blues and R&B guys that they may not have heard before. And, um, and that was part of the exchange. So like it gets very complicated, but about the, inst- on the instrument question too, this is a Lido Pinienta controversy, but <laughs> she, she, she's, uh, she, she's a good source for, for some of these. It insights. always goes back to Lido. <laughs> <laughs> All roads lead to Lita. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So she was uh, she was playing a, a show. I think it was in Montreal. I can't quite remember. With this band that were like playing sort of like a take on traditional Laotian music. Mm-hmm. And so I think that they were using some instruments that were like like you know native to Laos and and uh, kind of were putting this like you know sort of like indie electronic spin on uh, you know this this sort of older folk music form. And uh, she was playing after them and she went on the stage and like went on a tirade about how she had known they were playing. She wouldn't have agreed, agreed to do it and everybody should be ashamed of themselves and like all of this kind of thing, completely ignoring the fact that like the driving member in that band is of Laotian descent, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. And was sort of just like kind of doing this thing with his friends. But it was just the occurrence of these, I guess, like non-white elements in this different context was enough to sort of set off the accusations. And I mean, for me, I just I just think if we start treating all of this a certain way, it's a dead end. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's that whole like perception of an artist being a piece of shit or not. And if that denotes their art as being shitty or not. And it's like, that's, yeah, that's a, like, why? Why do we have to do can that? Can we just not consume what we want to and then not consume <laughs> what we question. don't want to? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a fun one, too, because, like, so when that Michael Jackson documentary came out, like, however long ago that was, mm-hmm. um, there was a couple stores, and one in particular in Toronto, who, you know, made this big statement that they weren't going to carry Michael Jackson's albums anymore. I mean, like, fine, that's their choice, but what about all your James Brown records? Yeah, mm-hmm. Or like John Lennon, for that matter. Mm-hmm. You know, all of these other people who have like a really horrible track record. Uh, yeah, that's wh- such a slippery slope. Yeah. Musicians are notoriously have a bad track record. <laughs> They're all pieces of I shit, mean- so we should just take it all and enjoy it. <laughs> I wouldn't yeah. say that, but... <laughs> no, it's, I mean, it's fair in a way, but like, this is the thing, right? Like, who doesn't have a bad track record mm-hmm. in some area, mm-hmm. right? Like... I think that there's this weird kind of thing going on in the culture is that like everybody wants to pretend they've never been a bad person by throwing all of the like bad people under the bus. Mm -hmm. And I think, I don't know, anybody who's honest with themselves has at times like done bad things, you know? And so, yeah, it's like a slippery slope. Where does that go? I mean, yes, we haven't all like potentially molested children or like beaten our wives or whatever, but you know, where, where does it stop? basically. Mm-hmm. And it just becomes about who's like trendy to hate on at that moment in time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's a very clear line about who it's trendy to hate on right now. Mm-hmm. Um, although there is this sort of weird irony with Michael Jackson in that like, obviously, you know, like he was a, he was a black guy who's abused himself mm-hmm. uh, like as a kid quite horribly. And yeah, like he, pro- he, I'm not going to weigh in on it, but like he probably may have done some some really heinous stuff, but 
I don't know. Does that mean you never want to listen to Thriller again? Yeah. Like, are you going to not like nod your head when Billie Jean comes on the radio? <laughs> like, like, but that's like, what people think like uh, counts as like action these days. I don't know. Like, it's weird because at a time when culture is so dead and like empty and meaningless, um, people only think in terms of like symbolic stuff and they put like a crazy amount of importance on really empty gestures like that it's it's i don't know it's it's weird cancel culture yeah i do think <laughs> yeah well i mean i i think that you just hit on something though and uh, i sort of have this feeling not just about music i feel like we as a culture think we're out of ideas mm -hmm. in a certain way hmm. and like we, we feel like we've sort of hit this stalling point and a lot of people have written this written about you know even TV written movies, right? Like how, like when you go to the cinema, it's all superhero shit. Mm. Um, or made off a book. Right. Like recycling old forms. And it's kind of like somebody, uh, what's his name? Mark Fisher, cultural critic and philosopher. He sort of wrote that we're sort of living in this present where we have no ideas. So we're constantly haunted by the past which is in turn making us feel like we can't have new ideas again. Mm -hmm. And his thing was like, you could pick any song from today and put it on the radio in 1992 and it would fit. Um, and like, that might be a bit of an overstatement, but, but I do think that there might be something to the fact that because we feel like we're out of ideas, it's sort of become more of like a dog eat dog situation. Mm -hmm. Totally. So you wrote, the most recent article you wrote was about mental illness, and we know artists and musicians tend to struggle with mental illness. So any thoughts on how this cultural landscape might exacerbate those problems? Um, or not, or I don't know, maybe maybe it's just kind of always been like this, but the type of shit it used to be is just different, <laughs> or the type of shitty it used to be is different. But yeah, just how has like, maybe speak to that? Well, I mean, like, I think there's probably a truism about like the arts and people that struggle with certain things, you know, they're, they're sort of attracted to like liminal spaces and gray areas in life and like, you know, expression as like a like a vessel for for things that they feel like they can't deal with like internally and also in some cases just like blatant narcissism like <laughs> wanting attention but i'm but seriously like i mean it, you know if you can fill your own void by being like cheered on by thousands of people like that you know that is also kind of a uh like an echo of like a, a like a deeper personal crisis or go so viral. i think that <laughs> sure. Yeah, exactly. So I think that there's always been sort of an association with uh, with like artists and mental illness. I don't know if it has to do with being like exploratory in a certain way or uh, being sort of more willing to like engage directly with like hard emotions. I mean, this is not unique to music. Like you have like people like Van Gogh and I mean, you know, Virginia Woolf, like it just goes on and yeah, on and on. It's putting your shit out um, there for everyone to judge, right? It's got to be hard and stressful. Yeah, and I think that the, the 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 people who usually do that because they're making this stuff are highly sensitive to begin with, and so it can can be very difficult, you know. And obviously, as everybody knows, like even in, in music in the last few decades, like there's like some notable like mental illness related deaths, you know, and some things like we're like you know accidental drug overdoses and stuff like that. But people, you know, have to remember like substance abuse often is a manifestation of um, you know other things that are that are troubling you. Uh, as for the cultural more, the culture more broadly, uh, I think we're all having a gigantic mental health crisis. Mm -hmm. And by, by, by that, I don't mean like, yeah, I, I don't mean like 
it's just true that the rates are on the increase generally. And so as to why that is, like, I can speculate. I think it probably has to do with, like, uh, you know, like people talk about the meaning crisis a lot mm -hmm. and how technology and social media has sort of, like, fragmented us. Mm -hmm. Uh, instead of building new communities, it's kind of built these online communities, which are not a substitute uh, for the real world and sort of tend to head towards certain fragmentary forces. Uh, and so they fracture very easily. Um, I think everybody is deeply unsettled by the fact that we all have to make ourselves into a product mm -hmm. whenever we put ourselves on the internet. And like, and I think that that's something that doesn't get talked of about enough because whether it's like your Facebook profile or like Tinder or whatever, you're, you're trying to like design yourself in a certain way that you know is going to be scrutinized by other people in a certain way. And like, yeah, scrutiny always existed, but not, not at this level. Not when you could sit there and like pour over Not it, to your face. Right? <laughs> well, right. And I mean, so it's that. And I think in general, we also live in a really uncertain time, yeah. right? And you only need to look at the last year, uh, you know, and last three or four years to really sort of see that. I think everybody knows, you know, whether we're talking about like the environment or like economics or, I don't know, political polarization or whatever. I also personally... I think like everybody's suffering from information overload. Yeah. So, so nobody has like peace in their own brains, right? Because if you think about it, like you, you leave the house, you're getting like blasted with ads. The internet's like constantly beeping at you in your pocket. You feel like you got to keep up with like every fucking thing that Netflix makes. Otherwise you can't, you know, uh, like engage with the people you know, because <laughs> you have nothing re real to talk about anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, like, I think that th these are all like subtle ways in which people's mental health uh, is is severely impacted. And unfortunately, like, I think sort of avenues like music and like even like writing and so on, filmmaking, like the these used to be things that used to make us feel better, mm -hmm. right? Like it, it would be ways that you could sort of like soothe yourself uh, from some of the, the uh, like the slings and arrows of life. But, but now, you know, these, these cultural areas uh, are sort of being affected in certain ways and becoming more of a product, quite, quite frankly. So in cases, they're, they're almost part of the problem in a lot of instances. Mm. And that's not to say that's always the case either, right? Like uh, in that article I wrote about, like Frightened Rabbit are a really good example of, uh, you know, unfortunately Scott died due to his depression, but, you know, that band like sort of always tackled, I mean, particularly because he was the primary songwriter, they really went deep into talking about this stuff. And it definitely was something that made people feel better. You know, there was this online community I wrote about where um, even before his death, uh, where, pe where people just sort of got together like with strangers on the internet and, and it was a Facebook group and just like, they would just talk about like what was going on in their lives. It was like making them feel terrible. And it was actually the only place I've ever seen online where there wasn't a lot of judgment flying around. Yeah, they have a you they know, have a subreddit too, the Frightened Rabbit subreddit actually. And like last year, my boyfriend's a huge fan, and he had like a little Frightened Rabbit pin that was on his jacket, and it was like a limited edition pin. And he lost it when he was hiking. And I just went on the subreddit and was like, "Hey, does anyone know where I can get one of these? Because you can't buy them anymore." And some random guy from the U.S. just sent me one in the mail and was like, "No, I won't take your money." Like donate to tiny changes like Scott's death left a hole in me this makes me feel better I was like oh, I love you guys <laughs> yeah no they, they definitely have something 
something there that I think um, is, yeah, it's hard to say what it Mm. is. I don't know. Does the cure have that kind of community of like, like like-minded, miserable people that like, (laughs) I'm sort of making light of it, but yeah. Well, I mean, I guess that that was the community. Yeah. I think that stuff is kind of rare these days. And I think people are sort of yearning for these like more human connections, kind of like you just outlined. Right. Because that's like a one-to-one exchange, Mm -hmm. right? Like this guy was like, I'm going to help you out. And um, it sounds like it was really born out of like really just wanting to do that Um, as opposed to like, look at me because I'm helping the other people out or something like that. Because that's a thing. Yeah. Yeah, That's one of the more like altruistic things I've heard in a long time without the. I know I was, I was truly taken aback by it. I was like, Oh my God, I have not felt something that genuine from a stranger in a very long time (laughs) it's like oh people are nice i i expect the worst of everyone nowadays because that's what i'm taught everybody's a piece of shit right like well everybody is a piece of shit on the internet I mean, but except even me, like to be like, oh, like I'll give you this pin, but can you like tag me on an Instagram post and like yeah. make sure everyone knows this happened, kind of thing. Yeah. Can you purchase my OnlyFans? <laughs> yeah, um, maybe some. We can just talk about some general Canadian music stuff yeah. uh, for the last little bit. Like, uh, I don't know, we have some favorite Canadian artists of yours. I'm gonna sort of like preface this by saying that I'm not really particularly interested in Canadian music. Um, <laughs> Cancel you and the rest of the No, but the reason why is like it's, because I just don't like. What does it matter if it's Canadian yeah, no. mm-hmm. like these days? And I mean, and to be honest, like I'm kind of I, I like scenes better, right? Mm-hmm. Than like sort of these jingoistic ideas of like where you're from mattering about what you make. So like just as a to sort of go back a little bit like there's a really good like post-punk scene right now and it's like preoccupations in canada you have like a band like idols in britain i love and idols like, Mar- yeah and then proto martyr in the u.s oh, yeah, like, like them. And, and they all sort of like play together and they're part they're part of a scene even though they don't exist in one place mm-hmm. you know and like for example i mean i guess this is kind of bucking the national point that i'm making <laughs> uh but like the best hip-hop in the world right now in my opinion is all british it's like not it's not coming out of the US. Like there's some good stuff in Canada, but the British like like Stormzy and and like the grime yeah, stuff, Stormzy it's just is sick. you know. Yeah, slow tie, these guys, like they're they're really really doing something. So I don't really like to focus on Canada for that reason. But I mean if we're gonna talk about But any artists favorite... who happen to be from Canada that you want to say Canadian artist is Lido. <laughs> uh, yeah, we gotta we gotta hit our quotas here. I mean <laughs> I do, I do really like uh, like Godspeed, Godspeed You Black Emperor. I've sort of been a fan of them since I was like a, like in my teens. You know, like in terms of new bands, I think Preoccupations do very well. I really like Devin Welsh or Devin Walsh. He's you don't really hear much about him. I think he's like really underrated. He used to be in this this sort of duo, this duo called Magical Clouds, uh, and now he's sort of struck out on his own. He's a Montreal guy who has this very, like, very rich, like, baritone, croony voice and just, like, writes these, like, fucking sad songs. Mm-hmm. Uh, that but sounds they, right they're all so, <laughs> Yeah, that yeah, does sound right up your alley. Devin Walsh. All, I'm going to write this yeah, in my notes. Devin Walsh. Yeah, Perfect. yeah, yeah. 
and uh, got to listen to Magical Clouds too, because I mean it was essentially all him anyway. But he, uh, yeah, he's a very, very good lyricist, and the music's very bittersweet. Do you like pub? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you have to answer. <laughs> There's no bias there. At all. That's, that's a tough one. I kind of know some of the guys in pop, so it's it's like I mean not like like we're not friends, but I like I know them from the circle. Are they do they're, they're they're all really nice. Okay. Like by the way, uh, I kind of like I like what pop does, but it's not really for me. Okay, right. Is what I would say. Like I never I was not like a when I was younger I was not really like a pop punk mm-hmm. person. Um, I was kind of like way into louder. Uh, noisier stuff and I've always sort of like had a had a particular soft spot for like British mm-hmm. music in particular our hometown totally growing up was just like pop punk pop punk pop punk skate punk like <laughs> what, what was your hometown Georgetown oh shit my mother grew up in Georgetown really? oh my goodness <laughs> yeah we probably all know she's like pop punk guys your mom pop she's a little old to even know, know what that is but what about some overrated Canadian artists? Oh, this one's easy. <laughs> uh, like, start with Drake and work your way back. It's basically... No, I mean, like, yeah, I, Drake I find really over, overrated because even in terms of, like, what he does, he's not really the best at it, mm. but he's one of these guys who's, like, constantly held up as being, like, like an artiste mm-hmm. in that kind of rap world. And he's really... He's, he's highly mediocre. Yeah. Um, strong mediocrity there (laughs) more controversial maybe i think mac demarco is really same oh my god i cannot understand it i cannot fucking understand it i honestly like you love him (laughs) i totally went through mac demarco phase but that was when i was in peak alcoholism (laughs) so Well, I mean, all of the songs are kind of basically a version of Patio Lanterns, so it makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, like he's like I get what he's doing. Like he's, he, I mean, and he's interesting that way. But it just, I don't know. I actually I don't think it's that interesting. Maybe that's the yeah. Problem. I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> I forgot he was Canadian, actually. Yeah, he. Uh, well, he kind of like like I think he got his start in the U.S. Um, which is not uncommon, but who else is overrated, in my opinion? What about the weekend? I mean, oh yeah, totally. <laughs> Good one. Uh, well, I think the weekend's the... still better than Drake, though. At least he's like doing so. Drake just like talks over beats. The weekend's kind of I, I, I think of them the as place. the same tier for sure. Drake and the weekend. Well, the weekend, you're right. Like he's a better singer, right? Yeah, that's like, like, all I meant. Yeah. But but the thing about like uh, this drove me nuts at the time. And actually, I've got a story about the weekend. What people really liked about the weekend initially was all that like really like ghostly production that was sort of like kind of you know lifted from like Massive Attack mm-hmm. and like Portishead and yeah. like these these other far more interesting bands mm-hmm. and sort of he he set that to uh, you know to him seeing sort of contemporary R and B about like dark stuff like cocaine. I, don't know, I took so much Hashtag Xanax and cocaine I can't even see. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> And it was, I don't know, I just found it to be like really overwrought and kind of a little performative. And then what, what was the, mo- what, the most interesting thing about it, which was the backing music, because you didn't really hear a lot of that in R&B and stuff like that. That has nothing to do with him personally. Mm-hmm. Like he, is, he, he doesn't make that stuff. And um, the puppet. Yeah, he's not a puppet, you know, but, but people, people don't like... Ainsley out here with the accusation. He's a puppet. Everybody listen here. <laughs> 
I have never seen proof he's not a puppet. <laughs> he's owned by the lizard people. Um, no, they, but people, you know, the, people don't really understand how the pop music world tends to work, which is like you have like eight songwriters on a song, mm-hmm. like, and all these people go to camps and they write songs like in like like a kind of like it's a sausage factory, wow. and then those songs are sold to various artists, and uh, you get a big name producer to come in and like you know build the music behind it like it it's 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 a product mm-hmm. right and i mean like all music is a product of course i'm more you know i'm more curious um like besides the weekend and drake like less popular musicians that are overrated can you just knock off a couple more <laughs> very curious <laughs> less popular like like oh as in, like, in like the max and marco less. tier obviously he's quite famous now and like he has been for a while but like in the Ooh. lower tiers. That's what I'm mainly curious about. Orville Peck. Oh, okay, you're okay. Want to talk about Orville Peck? Uh, <laughs> sure do. Isn't he super popular? I don't know that he. I don't think he really is that popular. Is he? I don't. I don't know. Maybe don't I'm the wrong really person. Know. I just mean like off of radio level. That's that's tough. I mean, I think part of the reason why I'm maybe gonna have a hard time answering this is because like I think if you're off of that level, uh, for me anyway, like it's hard to be overrated because you're still just kind of like mucking Not around. Yet. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I mean, like, so it's easier to talk about like underrated people. I mean, cause I was thinking like, who else do I think that's overrated? Who's Canadian? Like the Arkells, I think are overrated. Oh yeah. Uh, Tegan Sarah. Oh my God, Tegan. Well, I don't know. What is Justin Bieber? <laughs> anyway. That's a good question. That's, that's so true. Another I was just trying to think of famous Canadians. You think Tegan and Sarah are? <laughs> that's funny. Yeah, so, it, I mean, maybe I'll think on it for a couple minutes. But what, wait, but... hold on. What do you think of Orville Peck? So, I think he's kind of interesting. Hot or not? Uh, <laughs> I think he's hot. <laughs> behind the mask. I know he is. That jawline. Yeah, I, I gotta go with hot yeah, okay. behind the mask. <laughs> okay. But, uh... It's funny, like, because his shtick wouldn't work if his music wasn't a little interesting. Yeah. Mm, and, it, and it and it is. Like, his music actually is, is kind of, it, like, it's kind of neat. It has something to it. But how far can it go? I don't know. Mm. Uh, so what about overrated, then, in your world? Like, let's uh, mm. go around here. I mean, everybody's got an opinion. Come on. I'm trying to think. Lido, <laughs> you pretty much you pretty much said all the ones that you know. Yeah, same. And also, Spotify has completely destroyed my ability to even like know what I'm listening to. I just kind of, if I like something, I'll like add it to a playlist to listen later. But I don't even. Yeah, where did they come from? Where did they go? And I don't even like know where the artists come from. So that's sad. This is actually sorry. The, yeah, this is kind of one of the things about Spotify that I probably should have mentioned earlier that um, is, is sort of a big problem is like everything's a lot more disposable, right? So if you find an artist, like say you like one of their songs, you're not going to go uh, like flying to the independent record store to try and find out every single thing you can about this person, mm-hmm. like where they came from, like who they work with, like stare at their record art for hours. What inspires uh, them? Yeah, it's just sort of, it's like it's there and then it's gone. And like the structure of Spotify. I mean, we lost this a long time ago, but the structure um, impacts the way that music is even made in the sense that like a lot of artists now don't even make an album for it to be listened to from start to finish. It's more so just about like what would be a hit kind of thing. So like technology and the way it's like produced and like lack of people buying records and stuff. Yeah, I think that there is like a big 
you know, another thing people forget is a lot of this is driven by consumers, right? So now for a lot of people, like music is glorified wallpaper. I think that the way it's consumed, which is a choice, like you can go out, there are still records that I think people make that are meant to be listened to back to front, totally. (laughs) Like there's some good ones, even out of Canada, believe it or not. Um, Believe it or but, not, but the but the, but the I'm kidding. But the problem is, is that like you know, people don't form the relationships that they do with with music and art generally in uh, in the way that they used to before the internet came along. And it's hard not to think that part of the reason why is because like it's like Tinder. There's so many relationships you can form. Why stick with just one thing? Yeah, my dad know? will hear a song and he'll be like, oh, yes, this reminds me of the summer of 1967. I was with my friends Bill and Steve at the high school dance. And he like has a very specific, like he knows all the years and everything because it he was so attached to that. It was right, like a very right. informative. It's like a whole experience. Or, sorry, so, a part of his life. This might be an interesting question then. Do you... Do, do you guys have anything like that? Like I'm a little bit older than than y'all, but not by too, too much. But do you have anything that you'd like associate with like a particular point in time? I was going to say like what you said about like people used to have more of a connection to stuff. Like I remember this was like post Napster, but when I started getting into uh, like Riot Girl punk music and going on like message boards, Riot Girl message boards, and like just consuming every little bit of information I could about that whole culture and like wanting so badly to be a Riot Girl. <laughs> yeah. I was like 12, so yeah. I couldn't be. Um, but like, and just like learning everything about all of the bands and like, I don't know, that's probably like the most I've ever felt like involved in a scene, even though it was online. But that was still before things got out of hand in terms of, um, you know, uh, online communities still had that connecting flavor to them because they were smaller and less uh, promoted and like advertised and manufactured. Um, but that that's what came to mind for me just in terms of like that type of stuff. For me, like biggest nostalgic moments, I guess, specifically with music would be, and I mean, I guess you could argue, I mean, we had Ed the Sock on here, but and much music was like right in its downfall around this time. But like in the 90s, my sister and I still talk about like really old music videos that we saw in much music or the different shows. Um, And like we talked about the Fromage Awards with uh, Ed the Sock and stuff. So I love Fromage. That was great. Yeah, me too. yeah, that was at the Sox Imperial era. Mm-hmm. Oh, Rush. Rush is fucking and- overrated. Yeah, Just I don't thought care of one. About yeah. <laughs> uh, you- don't 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 tell any Rush. I know, fans, I know. <laughs> yeah, it's it's funny because what you were saying about the Riot Girl thing too, like I, I can't help but th- I mean obviously like I'm not a thirteen year old girl. Um, obviously like I, I think those scenes exist less now than they used mm-hmm. to. Right, because everything, and I mean, you're talking about something that was still kind of internet mediated. Mm-hmm. Um, LimeWire era. I think, how many computers did you destroy using that thing? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I don't know what the communities are. Like, I mean, I guess like you look around and, and it's like Tumblr or I don't know, a- anime or something. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm just guessing. I mean, I don't. <laughs> Tell us more about your anime. <laughs> Actually, I, I hilariously know 
fuck all that anime. Um, but it's a thing I see on the internet. I don't know. There's all these people yeah. like anime avatars. Yeah, so no, it's definitely a, a strong subculture. <laughs> yeah, every like music is just so independent now with all of these apps. There's not really much of that community left unless you go to a show. But I never see like local shows anymore or anything. And I haven't been to a concert in so long. So I'm just like, eh. It's too far. It's all ages. I, Fuck that. I can't you know? stand there and watch the band. Like I, I don't know. I'm. I, I don't have the like disposition anymore to like. I don't drink anymore. So I, I've been to shows and I stand there and just feel uncomfortable the whole time, <laughs> and like it, it's just not for me anymore. And I don't know. I think the last the last band I saw was Prozac. I'm pretty sure on their <gasps> reunion tour. Really? <laughs> That's a great way to end. Like shows <laughs> that's a great last show they were visual visually stimulating though because they have like cartoons and shit so i was like this is a concert for the modern person you know oh, oh i have a question actually <laughs> are you familiar with the pirate metal genre because ainsley oh, and i not yeah i am because well, actually the reason why i am is because like when i was working in the record store there was the guy who ran the metal section yeah of the you know and he he loved him some pirate metal okay and, and so he used to fun. sort of subject us all to it sometimes yeah ainsley and i um, saw a band called ale storm and they're like grab your oh, yeah, big yeah. legs yeah yeah I, I know exactly who you mean oh, really? um, yeah they're hilarious it but, was fun uh, very fun uh but i think that's the thing with shows too now like i mean i don't know if sonia this is what you mean but like like the attention span thing kind mm-hmm. of comes through it. like you're sort of there for three songs and then it's like you go to the bar and like hang out. Like it, it, it's not, it doesn't seem to be that people are wired for like an immersive experience in the same way, mm-hmm. unless somebody comes out and really like blows you mm-hmm. away. Yeah. And that's why a lot of shows now like have like the extra like multimedia element, which can be really cool. So like the last show, I, or second last show I saw before uh, the pandemic was Massive Attack in Toronto. And they had this, they played at the Sony Center and they had um, Adam Curtis, who's like a very well-known like BBC documentarian. Mm-hmm. Hypernormalization. Um, yeah, exactly. He did all of their like screen work. That's so cool. And like the editing and it was really, really neat. Mm-hmm. It was like really well done, but like totally, totally immersive. But then on the flip side, it's like, I try to think of shows that like really didn't have that, like they grabbed an audience and I don't know, Young Fathers. Do you guys know Young mm-hmm. Fathers? No, I don't. Uh, they're uh, this Scottish three-piece uh, who won the uh, UK equivalent of the Polaris Prize a few years ago. But I saw them at the Horseshoe, and they like they like ripped the top off mm-hmm. that place. Um, like people were dancing and losing their minds, and it, and then Foles, who are like a again British, but like are like a kind of a little bit of a, like a stadium rock band in a way. They're like a way more interesting. They were like a Foo Fighters listen to the Talking mm-hmm. Heads, basically, and. Uh, they they like really put on a show like it's it just for whatever reason there's something about what they do that really grabs the audience um but i think that's a lot harder to do now because everybody's like looking at their phone <laughs> yeah. you know like whatever taking else. a selfie um, to show that they were at the concert and then leaving <laughs> Or filming the entire concert. I hate that. I hate that. That, 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 that honestly ruins it for that. me. I'm like, I came here to watch them, not 
a bunch of people's hands with I just get I'm distracted by how stupid it is I'm mad at the whole concept yeah. of it because I'm like what are you gonna do with that fucking video yeah. and then I go on like Snapchat and people literally have like the do you think anyone's watching yeah. that yeah. or enjoys like a secondhand weird iPhone video of your concert <laughs> it's a weird uh phenomenon Okay, maybe some just final questions and then we'll wrap up. Um, I thought of another artist. I wanted your thoughts on Arcade Fire. Thoughts and how how did they blow up so much? So they're one of those bands that like people uh, really love and like really hate, obviously. How they blew up is really interesting because I, I don't know that I can answer that. If I was to guess, I would say it would have to do with like timing in a way because they kind of like hit just like the last surge of what was like the big indie music surge and like the, you know, the early aughts, right. From like 2000 to like 2005, Mm -hmm. they sort of got in just at the end and they were doing something a little bit different. Like, whereas a lot of that, that stuff, actually this is too much of a blanket statement, but um, I feel like stuff that was more on the rock end, still like owed a lot of a debt to like grunge and like jangle pop and like, you know, this kind of stuff, whereas arcade fire were clearly like sort of more into like, again talking heads and like david bowie and stuff like that and bowie actually early on was like a very big booster of theirs so i mean that kind of hurt either but i think that they just got something right and uh look at the irish personally like yeah (laughs) i mean you know they, they weren't they were never on a canadian label so they were on merge right which is like one of the biggest u.s independents and um i think sometimes that helps like wolf parade is another band that was never on a canadian label and they had a lot of success uh, down south. But Arcade Fire, interesting. I like them. I kind of like what they do generally. I think I understand why people find them irritating. <laughs> but it's hard to argue. There's so with many like, of them, too. Yeah, I know. What, what you, how many people can you hate? Yeah. Like, they have an aesthetic that's clearly theirs, and they own it. And they also shapeshift over time. It's funny, like, I'm not they're, not, they're not my favorite band or anything, but I think that album, Reflector, is amazing. That's like a, that's a great fucking album. It's like probably one of the best uh, of, of those few years. It's just really, like, very incredible on every level. And I mean, it doesn't hurt that James Murphy from LCD Sound System helped produce it, and, you know, Bowie's featured on it too or whatever. But yeah, I, I think... I think they just really hit something and then wrote it really well. Although I think everything now was their first misfire and uh, we'll see what happens now. Yeah, I wasn't the biggest fan of Reflector. I don't know, maybe, and I saw them on that tour. Um, I am a big fan of them, but I will always go back to like Funeral or this. I, I, I really like the Suburbs too and like the short film that they did for that as well. I don't know, maybe it's just... What's her name? Regine? Regine? Regina. With her ribbons? Anyway. (laughs) It's, well, I mean, Reflector's like actually getting, I mean, I actually historically like it when bands do this. They take this like hard left turn because it is a lot different. Yeah, maybe I felt betrayed. I was like, (gasps) what is this? Well, yeah, yeah. Like it it doesn't, it doesn't have the romanticism of like the other, the other stuff. It's a little bit chillier Mm -hmm. in a certain way, but it sounds so good. And the songs are, uh, are, I mean, really well-written. And it, I think it actually does have a lot of, like, subject matter depth. Like, they're playing with the whole Orpheus and Eurydice myth, and, like, there's all kinds of stuff going on there that's really cool. But I understand why, like, it, yeah, 
it's definitely not the same as like rebellion lies or whatever. Like it's in a different camp, but often those are the records that people like, I like look back on as being really excellent. Like if you think of like David Bowie and Lowe, right? Like it's the furthest thing from Ziggy Stardust you could get. And at the time people were like, what the fuck is this? The back half is instrumental. But now, like, that's probably one of the things he's, he's best known for. And um, that's always an interesting trajectory in an artist's career. And I, I think Arcade Fire got it right. And then I think they tried to backtrack a little and it didn't work, which is usually also the case. Hmm. Looking at you, you two. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Remember when you two right, forced um, us to have their album on? Yeah, that was <laughs> so <laughs> upsetting. They go in the Hall of Shame just it like Metallica. It still comes on in my car, like randomly, and I'm like, I've deleted this from everything. Yep. I don't know where it's coming it's the most from. Ballsy They're thing still trying to get Brayden. They know she's vulnerable. They can smell weakness. Okay. Um, if if anyone is everyone, any final questions? That's everything. Okay. Well, thank you so much. It was a great conversation. Yeah, we thank really, you. really, really Very appreciate it. Stuff. <laughs> Thanks for having me, guys.